Well, let's go to Exodus chapter 32. We'll be there in a few minutes. I'm preaching today a message called The Lord Who Relents. I believe God's going to speak through his scripture today. And we're all going to know him better and be able to know his love and share his love in a more effective way. If you want to check into Facebook, it's so helpful when you do that. It, it, it is an easy way for people to know that the church at Indian Lake, that we're out there ready to welcome folks. I was a youth pastor for about 10 years, took a lot of kids on different trips. One particular trip, we were working with Dallas Metro Ministries and Clay Wallace, and we were given this assignment. Sometimes on mission trips, these were junior high kids, uh, there's a little bit of busy work that helps get kids involved, get a heart for the ministry, but it's a functional task. This particular task was to unload a truck full of dozens and dozens of watermelons. So in order to get everyone involved, I set up a system and I, I set up a human kind of fire truck brigade between, between the truck and where the people wanted to place the watermelons. And so I set it up with the youth staff and left to, to let the youth staff lead and just to make sure everything was going, uh, going well. And I stepped away went into the director's office to spend some time with him. Well, we were in there talking for a few minutes, and then I had one of the youth staff come in and say, Pastor Aaron, you need to get down here. I'm like, well, I'll get down there in a few minutes. And then that person emphasized it. No, you need to come down right now. And, of course, you know where this is going. It was a mess. These kids had dropped watermelons everywhere, and it was just a mess. And so we had to come down and clean it up and start a whole new system. I was thinking of that story when I, when I read today's scripture because, you know, Moses went up on the mountain to get the word from the Lord. And when he went up on the mountain, a mess was happening when he returned. That's where our text is today, Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, go down at once for your people. This reminded me of that story. Go down at once. The watermelons are splattered everywhere. Your kids. I don't even know a leader. It's only their people when things are going wrong, right? When things, when things are going right, the people say, hey, we don't need a leader anyway. This is a good church, a good group, a good team. We don't need the coach. But when it's wrong, it's the coach's fault. It's the pastor's fault, whatever the case is. So go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned away, turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, here's deception, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This was clearly, clearly a sin, a breaking of the Ten Commandments they were about to receive, to have no other gods before God, and to have no other idols. This was an absolute mess. If you're following the outline today, I want to give you three points from this passage that is going to reveal this Lord who relents. It's going to reveal more about God and it's going to reveal a lot more about us. And here's something, I'm not happy to tell you this, but the scripture communicates this from the beginning to the end, that God's people sin. That's our first point today. Not the most uplifting point, but it's a point of reality. God's people sin. 
you know, there are some groups of Christianity, uh, in Christianity, some of the holiness groups, these are great, great people, I get my education through them, uh, that believe in entire sanctification. There's a point where you never sin. You, you get so close to God that you never sin again. And I wish that was the case, but that's not really true because unfortunately the people among those holiness groups, a lot of times they're pretending so much that they don't sin that they sin by lying to each other. Let's suppose that one of us had the perfect day, okay? I'll use myself. I woke up that morning on this perfect day and spent two hours and 40 minutes with God. I tithed 10% of my day with the Lord. Spent time with the Lord. Then I served my family perfectly that morning. And just we just had this angelic homemade breakfast together with kindness all around the breakfast table. Then I went to work and in my vocation, I did incredible things for the business or for whatever type of commerce I was in. And I witnessed the people and I was just so amazing. People said, what's different about you? It wasn't, tell me about your God. I mean, it's just like the perfect day. After work, I had time, after I exercised for a while, to go serve. <laughs> I had time to go serve at the, the downtown soup kitchen. And then I came home for the second homemade meal of the day. And we had this incredible family devotional. And then we washed each other's feet. <laughs> and then we topped off the night with communion together. The, the, the perfect day, right? I mean, no one has that. Some of you will find this funny. I said no one has that except the Goen family, right? They had that in the, in the first service. Uh, so let's suppose I have this perfect day. I would conclude the day with this inner satisfaction, and I would just kind of sigh and say, man, I was good today. And then I would sin because I had pride. So sin is in our hearts. Now, this conclusion does not mean, oh, well, hey, I sin, you sin. Let's just, let's just put off all moral constraints and do whatever we feel like because you're going to see today that's, that's not really possible because of the nature of God. But I'm trying to position you in a place of humility, a place of humility of your need for Jesus and our sinfulness keeps taking us back to Jesus over and over and over again. Speaking of humility, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divert a little bit back to the watermelons. There's a great leadership lesson, a great leadership sermon about uh, within this passage in Exodus 32. You know, the leader disappears and, and then everything becomes a mess. Because I believe through leadership theory and through the Bible that everything needs to have a leader. Because even when people pretend like there is no leader, and they say, we're going to lead this as a group. There is a leader within that group. So there needs to be a leader to be responsible, and then that leader needs to be a servant like Jesus. So in this case, you see that all in Exodus 32, all that gets messed up when there's not leadership place. So I went back and corrected my students who were dropping watermelons everywhere. I was like, guys, I can't believe you're doing this. These watermelons cost three bucks a piece or whatever it was. And I told you not to play around. I told you not to goof off. All right, here's the deal. This is what we're going to do. We're going to get focused right now. We're going to get in a line. And as a good leader, now I decided to join them. I said, I'm going to join you and we're going to drop one more watermelon. So I get the front of the line, the front of the fire, fire truck brigade kind of passing the watermelon, take the first watermelon and drop it right on the ground. 
So that was humility for me. And those who were part of that story laugh about it for several years. They said, watermelon, Pastor Aaron, yeah. But we had a good time with that and came up with a better system. The point is, uh, junior high kids passing watermelons just does not work. But back to the point of the sermon. The people, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, understood their sinfulness. And in fact, they even sang about their sinfulness. In Psalms chapter 14, Psalms are a record of the songs that God's people sang, that Jesus sang, and that we sing also. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. What, it, what is the point of this? The point of this is to help us be introspective to see our sinfulness because until we recognize our sinfulness, then we'll never recognize our need for Jesus. You don't need a savior until you need to be saved from something. And I, for one, need to be saved from my sinfulness. And, and I need God and I need him in my life. And, and one of the challenges of our generation is we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to call things sin. And we don't want to face the sin in our lives because frankly, we like ourselves. We, we've been created, we, we have been through an education system um, which is based off positive self-esteem. And th- that's not wrong. That's not wrong. I, I agree with much of that. But when it comes to theological realization that causes us not to accept our sinfulness, not to take responsibility for our sinfulness. Now at this point, if you didn't write down the point, the point was God's people sin. And and I share this with you because I know this, because I know me and I know the people I'm in community with that there's sin in this place that needs to be dealt with. And I want to share something with you today. It's an email that I got a week ago. Uh, It was a Sunday afternoon. I didn't read it because I was ministering that morning. I didn't read it until Sunday afternoon, but this is totally serious. I'm not setting up a joke or anything like that. I I cannot be more serious about what I'm about to read to you. And I just feel like the Lord wants you to hear this because I know statistically this is accurate, but I also know that this is a word from God. There's a man that does not attend this church that I've known almost 20 years now who has proven himself to to be an accurate uh, giver of words from the Lord. Um, whether you want to call it a word of knowledge, prophecy, whatever label you want to give that to. And so I trust him. He's not perfect. Uh, and, and it's not the scripture, but it is going to awaken some people here today. I'll read this email from this man. So the Lord woke me up about 2.30 a.m. this morning. Sunday, September 4th, and told me that someone in your congregation is about to make a grave error. Specifically, the Lord said this, said that, quote, they are about to throw their whole life away. Whoever it is, male or female, is about to cross the line and get physically involved with a person to whom they are not married. This person is currently married but is already mentally and emotionally involved with this other person. In fact, they have already made the arrangements and have set time and place to meet to start sexual relations. The Lord said that Satan is sorely tempting this person to do this. What this person does not know is that if they go ahead and commit adultery with this other person, that their entire life is going to swiftly come crashing down upon them. 
They're going to lose everything they got and everything they are. I felt very strongly that you should make an open appeal to your congregation that this person should get in touch with you or your wife privately to get counsel and then to walk away before it's too late. This is the only warning the Lord will give this person. And so I'll share that with you now. And I share it with you because I love you guys. And I know statistically that people are battling um, with thoughts of infidelity or participating in infidelity. So that's not, that, I mean, that, that's just, just the numbers we had in the first service in this, um, this sermon that's probable. But the Holy Spirit's bigger than statistics, right? So he, he, he's, he's, he's speaking to some of you very specifically today. He's, he's speaking to you. And Beth and I are available to help in whatever way we can. I say this is because sin is very serious. It's very destructive. And the reason that I gave you the point today that God's people sin is not to excuse your sin or to create a pathway for you to live in excuse. It's to let you know that you can be saved and you can be walking with the Lord and you are not immune from the temptations that come in this world or the temptations that come from Satan himself. And so, this is what I want to say to you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Live. Get the help that God wants you to have. Now, at this point, no one's going to talk to me after church, are they? (laughs) Everybody's going to avoid me. So, you can contact Beth or R privately, and please say hello to me after church, and no one get the gift of suspicion and wonder what's happening. God's people sin. And here's the second point that I want to give to you this is God responds to sin. To sin. God responds to sin. Exodus chapter 32, back to today's text, verse 9 says this, the Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now in our contemporary mindset as Americans in 2016, the idea of God getting angry, uh, we, we, we get really uncomfortable with that. Because we say, well, God's a God of love. He doesn't get angry. But I want you to see this, is that God's anger is perfect. See, our anger is not. Our anger is typically disruptive. I suppose it's possible for you or I to have righteous anger, but most of the time what we call righteous anger is just us not having control, self-control. God's anger is righteous and it's good. And I'm going to tell you this, God's anger is an expression of his love. So it's wrong to say, well, how can he say God gets angry because he's a loving God? A loving God is a God who reacts to destructive things. And when God responds to our sin, and even in an angry way, it's an expression of his love. So let me, let's go with a metaphor here. And you can imagine this out as I tell it. Let's say there was a grandpa, grandfather one time, who decided to, 
decided for his multiple, multiple grandkids, many, many plethora of grandkids, he was going to create something special for them. He had a piece of property, and he said, I'm going to create trails on this piece of property, like walking trails, maybe biking trails, maybe four-wheeler trails, and, and I'm going to create it to a certain extent on the best part of property that I have, uh, but I, I'm going to let my grandchildren create with me. And so he found the greatest piece of land, he created the trails, and then he built this warehouse. He built the warehouse, and in it was everything you would need to create, everything you would need to um, create this wonderful playground or this place of refuge. There were supplies, there were blueprints, there was safety equipment, there was even refreshments, everything in this warehouse. He could just unleash the creativity in his grandkids, and that's what happened. And it started out great. Gardens were built. Picnic tables were built along these trails. Uh, it, was, it was everything, like, like a miniature, almost like a theme park. Th- these, these kids were building everything. They even built a wedding gazebo. Who builds one of those anymore, right? I mean, everything you could possibly want was on this property, and things were going well. But over time, the grandfather who stayed in the main house began to see things in his grandkids he didn't like. He began to see bruises. And he began to see cuts. And he began to see the ramifications of violence. And so as he investigated, he began to see that the property which once was being created and what once was being developed and once was, ex- was meeting his expectations was now beginning to look in disrepair. And he noticed that these grandkids had formed gangs and these gangs begin to fight each other, and violence began to be the games that they played. Warfare began to occur. And now, instead of bruises and cuts, his precious grandchildren were being mangled, they, they were being killed, and destruction was there. Now, would a loving grandpa just say, Oh, well. That's just the way my kids are. But a loving grandpa would say, well, I guess that didn't work out like I thought it would. Let them just keep killing each other. No, something would rise up within that loving grandfather to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not, this is not reaching my intentions. And you see where this metaphor is going. God created this world, has called us to be partners to create a better world, and what we have done is we've taken his tools and his material and instead of operating with his intent, we have turned on one another, we have abused one another, we have, we have demonstrated injustice, we have fought and had war and we are destroying one another. And I want to tell you, a loving grandfather, and now as we connect the metaphor to theology, a loving God gets angry when a child is abused. A loving God gets angry when families are destroyed. A loving God gets angry when war kills millions and millions of people in the 20th century. That's what a loving God gets angry about. So don't tell me God doesn't get angry. If he didn't get angry then he wouldn't truly love us. We find more about our nature and God's nature in Jeremiah chapter four, verse 22. For my people are fools. 
They do not follow me. They are foolish children without understanding. They are skilled in doing what is evil, but they do not know how to do what is good. Isn't it crazy we live in a world where we can develop bombs that can destroy whole cities, but we have a billion people who are starving to death? We're skilled at doing what's evil. We can create weapons, but we can't end world hunger. You know, we, we, can, we can figure out ways to take advantage of children, but we can't figure out ways to give children the education and health care that they need. We're skilled at doing evil, but not skilled at doing good. Verse 26 of Jeremiah 4, I looked in the fertile field, that which was supposed to be productive, that which was supposed to be fruitful, that which was supposed to be great was a wilderness. And all its cities were torn down because of the Lord and his burning anger. So not to overuse a metaphor, but let's, let's continue. Let's see if it works some more. So what if this loving grandfather who was angry at the condition of this gift that he gave his grandkids, as he began to investigate, he began to hear. He began to hear a segment of his kids, a segment of his grandkids who had come together and they had said, the way things are are not the way things should be. This was not grandfather's intent. Our cousins are being destroyed. Our brothers and sisters are being killed. This is not the way it should be. Let's come together. Let's make a change. How can we make a change? How can we make a difference? We have to go back to grandfather and we have to ask for his help. So they begin to call out for him. They begin to cry, help, help us, help, help to make this trail, this group of trails, what it's supposed to be. And so he would respond. Here's, here's my last point today is God then responds to prayer. He responds to sin, but yet he responds to prayer. Verse 11, we learn so much about intercession here, though I'm not directly preaching on that today. Exodus chapter 32, verse 11, but Moses interceded with the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand. Why should... The Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your great anger and relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is also Jacob. You swore to them by your very self and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. And I will give your offspring all this land I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. Verse 14. And here is the title of my message where I got it from and the words that just arrested my heart in preparation. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster. He said he would bring on his people. This is in the old covenant before Jesus in the cross before much that had changed, but what hasn't changed was God's heart. God's holiness responds to sin, but his mercy is greater than his anger. And the Lord relented from his plans. When God's people begin to cry out, when God's people begin to ask for his help, when God's people begin to pray, everything 
begin to change. I want to ask our ushers to begin to position themselves to distribute the communion today. This is a day that God is bringing us to great joy. He's bringing us to great joy because God shows our sinfulness and he even reveals a portion of his love that is righteous anger. So then we can mercifully say, help us, O God. And, And you've come now. You come now to this great Jesus, this great Jesus who responded to the old covenant by which the people of Exodus were under, that incomplete covenant that only pointed people to their sinfulness, but not to the full atonement. And Jesus came and he became the atonement for the whole world, for all of humanity. That's what Jesus came. And so I like what Paul wrote. Paul was talking in the first Timothy chapter one, and he wrote these words to his protege, Timothy. He says, I think, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to this ministry. Now look at this, verse 13. This is, a lot of us can identify with this. Once who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I received mercy. This is, this is what we have. This is what we have. God's anger takes us to a place of humility so we can receive his mercy. And his mercy triumphs over his anger. His mercy is here for us. A lot of us, we don't need the mercy of the Lord because we like ourselves so much and we don't think we're sinful. I need his mercy. I, I call out for his mercy and his mercy is abundant and it's good. Many of you are worshiping a golden calf in your life. You, you, you haven't had leadership in your life and the ultimate leader, you haven't had Jesus in your life and without him, you are creating a false God in your life. And false gods have many, many names. I've been in the nation of India where there are thousands upon thousands of idols, corner after corner after corner, visible idols. And you can see the people throwing away their worship. They're throwing away their worship, worshiping items made of metal, items made of wood. But our idolatry is so much more subtle. We worship, we worship our comfort. We worship our sports teams. We worship our politicians, our cultural icons. We worship our own achievements. We worship our companies. It's a form of idolatry, making our golden calves. And the Lord wants us to enjoy those things when they're under his lordship and when he's number one and he's king of kings and he's lord of lords and he's above it all. That's what he wants. So you've been invited today, invited into the into the presence of God, into the communion of his people. You are a people. And today we put God where he belongs. That's why this is a day of joy because no one has to leave this place. No one has to leave this place worshiping a golden calf anymore. We're gonna let those things burn. And instead, the one great God revealed through Jesus Christ is before us. And he's speaking to us right now and we worship him.